0: over the past 40 years, we've neglected science to the benefit of capitalism, I think, in many cases. I think, like, good science hasn't won, or, like, good innovation hasn't won in over the past 40 years. It's, like, profitable innovation. And so I think as we transition our world economy to being more sustainable and being less profit-orientated, I think this new market for science will play a huge role because I think these new organizational forms that biotech does. Pose and that that um, asset classes like the IPNFT Pose actually stand, um, actually stand a chance to make our current system fundamentally more efficient.
1: Hey guys, Alex here, and welcome to a brand new episode of the Dside Podcast. We've got two very special guests today. Paul Kolhas is the co-founder and CEO at Molecule and is a founding steward at VitaDAO. I'm also happy to be speaking with Vincent Weiser. He's a product lead with a background in design and development and currently serves as chief of ecosystem at Molecule as well as chief of ecosystem and as a founding steward at VitaDAO. These two are both forefront pioneers in DSi with invaluable early experience shaping the space and deeper insights into what it might look like in the future. Today we spoke about the origins of Molecule, the state of scientific research, the biggest problems DSCI helped solve, and the launch of Molecule's newest project, Bio.xyz, the first biotech DAO accelerator. Hope you enjoy. All right, guys, let's do it. Um, thank you for making the time. First of all, it's great to uh, get a chance to sit down and chat.
0: Great to be on today, Alex
1: amazing. Well, listen, it's it's uh definitely an exciting time with BioXYZ being launched and and out in the public and everything. Um super excited to dig in and learn about all the work I'm sure you've been doing behind the scenes, but first let's take a few steps back here because there's a great story to tell on the road to getting there. Um Paul, why don't we start with you? You've got a pretty different background and it sounds like falling into crypto and drug development was more happenstance later on. Um, so before we hear the story of how Molecule came into being, I'd love to hear a bit on how you found yourself getting interested in the field in the first place.
0: Absolutely. Um, I was a member of like a lot of online biohacking communities as a teenager. Uh, so these were communities that were exploring um, uh, alternative um, diabetes treatments, for example. So um, uh, insulin patients that uh, didn't have access to, to insulin. Um, this actually gave birth to the open internet movement in the United States. So you, you essentially had people in online forums collaborating to get access to therapeutics that they didn't have access to. Uh, in other cases, these were HIV communities developing their own um, HIV gene therapies, uh, essentially just experimenting on themselves, but uh, in some cases actually with really interesting outcomes and results. Um, in other cases also, I think this, this form of open source drug development um, that we started really seeing in the early... 2000s with the advent of online forums that essentially enabled patient groups uh, and just researchers to come together and essentially explore, um, explore what's out there. I, I found that really fascinating. In other cases, for example, you have um, uh, psychedelics communities um, comprised of patients, um, again, researchers that are looking at hundreds of essentially back then um, legal psychedelics and, and we're exploring their effects. Um, and I found this really fascinating. I started asking myself, why kind of why are these people online doing this in the first place? Isn't this what pharma's role should be? Uh, and as I started looking more into the the role of the pharmaceutical industry and actually serving some of these patient groups, I realized that they were really underserved and that there was actually a lot of innovation out there that that could help them today, but that pharma companies weren't making weren't making accessible. Um, the same time, this was um, I was I was about 17, 18, um, and this was the time the the opioid crisis in the United States was becoming more prevalent. Um, and I really started wondering how the pharma system at a macro at a macro scale really serves um, serves patients um, on an organizational scale. So, you have you have a lot of um, you have a lot of diseases or patient groups that could be treated with pretty accessible diseases today a uh, pretty accessible medication today, and on the other case you have um, a pharmaceutical system that is more interested in pushing. Uh, pushing onto market, pushing revenue drivers onto the market rather than curing patients. So, there's a famous article written by Goldman Sachs in in 2018, just titled "Is Curing Patients a Sustainable Business Model?" Um, and this was focused on the development of a new um, uh, a new hepatitis C drug that essentially cured most of its patient population. Um, and there was a huge outcry back then. Because essentially what Goldman what did was uh, write this article stating that this pharma company should have never developed this hepatitis C drug because it essentially almost like it it um, killed its user base, its its client base, by developing a drug that actually cured patients um, rather than treating them over the life cycle of a disease. Um, there's many example, examples like this in the, in the medical system. And so I kind of, when I was 18, 19, I, I read a lot into this and, and got quite upset with the status quo. Um, that it's it's just really unfair if you're born with a certain disease and you don't have a, you don't have access to affordable healthcare around it, um, and uh, so I went on and I studied economics. Um, during my time studying economics, I, I got into biotech um, stock trading. Uh, I found that really interesting as the a biotech company is typically focused on developing one um, one maybe two lead um, therapeutics that they're developing um, in-house and typically biotech stocks at least when they're small cap um, so they're pretty pretty small companies they um, tend to trade at the burn rate of the company which is essentially just trending downwards in a pretty steady at a pretty steady rate and then positive data emerges around a drug and the stock price shoots up by like 5x <laughs> or negative data emerges and the stock price almost goes down by by minus 80 percent and I find that really fascinating because it's it's a fundamental market inefficiency if you think about it that like There's this big data package being produced and this one siloed company. No one gets to look at it, and then it's released, and like, wow, by magic, the company appreciates 5x in value. Um, And often, actually, within that process, negative data is never shared. So companies today actually don't have an incentive to share any negative data. Um, But I did a connection back then, so this is kind of back to my, like, open source um, teenager years spent on Reddit. (laughs) I made a connection back then that, like, these... Essentially, essentially, in these forums, you had data emerging in real time. People would say, like, hey, let's test the following drug, order some of it in, from a Chinese manufacturer, and essentially live, live report the clinical data that they were gathering. And in, in the other case, you have this extremely siloed, closed system. Um, and, um, and, yeah, and I figured back then that there's something amiss here and something that could be aligned in the terms of how therapeutics are developed much more openly. Um, and, uh, then around the same time we got into Bitcoin, this was, um, tail end of 2013, uh, just before and after the, the Mt. Gox crash. Um, and found that another really interesting community because it had a lot of the, the cryptocurrency community actually has a lot of similarities or had a lot of similarities with the open, open source software development community, uh, as well as with these open source drug development communities that I was a part of. Um, and then, yeah, went on a long the long rabbit hole that is crypto. <laughs> uh, here we are today, um, but but yeah. Following that, I worked at uh, Consensus uh, for for about one and a half years, two thousand seventeen to um, mid of 2018. Did a lot of work there around um, data marketplaces and also uh, digital identity standards. Uh, and back then at Consens at uh, this was Uport, we were trying to figure out how to attach. Um, digital identity data to non-fungible tokens, uh, essentially as a way to opening up personal identifiable information on-chain. So it's, it's, imagine if you have an on-chain identity, you typically have an Ethereum-based address. And back then, one primer that we were that we were looking at were attaching NFTs with um, essentially private data repos attached to them, to identities. For example, you can imagine healthcare records as a use case. Uh, and so... I had an aha moment back then where I was like, hey, and this was also the time that CryptoKitties started like really taking off quite widely. And I had this aha moment where I asked myself, hey, what if instead of attaching a picture of a cat to an NFT, we actually attached a a composition of matter patent? So like a marker structure, the fundamental um, piece of IP that describes a novel chemical entity uh, or a new drug. And what if we attach that to an NFT to essentially claim IP ownership? and then what if we um obfuscate uh, essentially obfuscate all of the private trial data that is attached to that and essentially make it tradable and transferable on chain um yeah and been pursuing that vigorously since 2018 um very humbled um that uh, th- this entire process that we we began thinking of almost yeah 3 years ago is actually starting to work um and yeah very excited to be here with you today um together with Vincent and you to, to usher in a new age for for biotech
1: excited to be here with you too that's quite a path um vincent what about you you're, you're obviously quite yeah deep in this you helped initiate VitaDAO, and you you seem to wear a lot of hats and molecule but you have i think a background in design and development what were some of those earlier interests that like yeah. influenced the path that you've taken to get here
2: so yeah i think the like kind of like the started out i think super early on just like being excited by the internet and really the possibility like as a kind of like young like as a teenager to just build on the internet in a permissionless way like even like with a website like um and no one knows like if you're like four like i think at the age of 14 i just like started creating some websites and like people took me seriously and interviewed interesting people and blogs and stuff and and i was surprised like but just like like how easy it is to like um get in touch with interesting people um and and build stuff in the internet no matter your like background age or um uh, credentials and and got really excited to just like basically got got uh, drink the startup kool-aid like early on got excited kind of like by just like technology and startups broadly and um building and exploring the space and then i remember just like asking myself kind of like what would be contact kind of, like, to degree the most uh effective and impactful technologies also for from positive impact um on, on humanity in general and kind of explore different areas also like jump deep into effective altruism and explore kind of like biotech ai like just like like kind of like the whole buffet of uh, interesting technologies that could have a positive impact on humanity and really got uh then in 2016 kind of like excited by um the, this idea like of Ethereum broadly, but then specifically uh, of the DAO, like as one of the first examples of like an interesting use case where like everyone could come together to like fund uh, decentralized technologies, build it on top of, of Ethereum and kind of like put all my Ethereum I- into the DAO, like alongside a ton of other people. I think like 20% of all Ether went there in the first day. And then, of course, got hacked, so it didn't, didn't work out, actually, which made me a bit more pessimistic, like, in the sense, oh, like, it doesn't seem to work. But then, actually, I, I got also one of my best friends into, into it, and we started exploring the space and then exploring uh, building a decentralized Ethereum exchange. Um, so I, that was, I think, 2017 or 18 with... Um, and then got got also excited in, in parallel by going deeper um, into, like, exploring biotech and longevity um, and went to conferences, et cetera, and um, just met met the first uh, few people in the space and tried to figure out, like, what could be the most impactful thing for me to do. So kind of, like, got deeper and deeper also on exploring drug discovery and the basics of kind of ML in the context of drug discovery. And then actually um, had the idea and, and um, for, like, is there something interesting at the intersection? Because my theory was, okay, like, um, there like at some of these intersections, there are interesting things to be built that are uh, non-obvious but uh, worth exploring. And then, um, like had like, like I remember like trying to register like longevitydao.com like without knowing anyone uh, who who was working on this um, at, at the intersection. But then actually met Paul and Tyler in Thailand twenty twenty one actually I think early uh, earlier that year. And and then they shared with me also that like what they've thought about and build with molecule and then the idea for VitaDAO. So I joined and helped on all kinds of aspects um, on VitaDAO. And yeah, I think the really exciting thing for me then also with VitaDAO was just like the possibility of like having again like a broad global online community uh, shared under the same goal and mission. Um and and trying out different initiatives um and and being very collaborative in nature to just like have a try to have an impact on this uh, broader mission of advancing longevity research yeah and so that's kind of like how it started so I'm now um, leading the ecosystem efforts at Molecule and helping also in BioXYZ basically uh, support and and mentor other DAOs in different aspects how they can yeah venture into this.
1: (laughs) Amazing guys Um, moving now like into the state of scientific research and some of the reasons Molecule exists in the first place. I think starting by talking about the state of some of those bigger problems would do us some good so more specifically and and maybe vincent you could speak to this a bit but how do you break down some of these larger concepts around things like preclinical trials and the value of death for for why DSI makes sense in the first place
2: yeah it's a good question i think on the one side what's relevant to understand is the current um like like state of funding of biomedical research and of course like the main funding body are the big state funding bodies for example DNAH and and also uh equivalent funding bodies in, in Europe and other places and and fundamentally they're like definitely had some impact obviously on a lot of things, but they're very monolithic and they they have like a specific approach and and they they dominate kind of like for example biomedical funding with like over ninety percent i think in the space coming from those state uh bodies and I think Fundamentally, I I always believe in this, just like alternative um, models and and trying out alternatives. But um, and I think going into the why of of these, I I think the power is really um, that you fundamentally make it much easier for more people to participate in sciences. I think, like to a degree, the sciences are extremely um, like making it hard for people to participate, but also kind of extremely elitist in the sense that like people are require, uh, required to have a PhD, uh, required even if they want to fund to be like, for example, in in, a, in one of these state funding bodies. And I think fundamentally, the goal really of these are, is to make it much easier for people to participate in the sciences and to the funding of sciences and to getting funded to do science. Um, and I think ultimately there are like, of course, multiple ways and primitives to do so, but I think that's the like underlying uh belief. And I think then like, specifically of course in on, on some of these problems you mentioned like the value of death and early stage funding of research. I think actually one problem is going back to the big state uh, funding bodies like the NIH that uh sometimes like the, the funding that they give is actually not not really um following up towards tra- uh, translating the research. So fundamentally most most uh professors and most at universities are not um experts at translating research. They are experts at doing research, but they, they don't necessarily know how to translate it into actually therapeutics. Like, of course, like biotechs, for example, are very uh, specialized in this. Same for a uh, big farmer. And I think sometimes the problem is actually that uh, basically between the academics doing amazing groundwork and like, actually laying the foundations for later stage uh, research, and then the biotechs and and farmers, that they're, that they're like not well... Um, integrated and versed together so i think that what we try to do is basically making it easier and guiding kind of like the academics and researchers and labs how they can also re- design experiments in ways that they maximize kind of the possibilities to actually have tra- translational um, results at the end of it um, so i think the power is for example in a very concrete example of, of vitadao is a lot of the applications that come in actually um, in that state might be funded by, by an NIH or by other funding bodies. But in our case, because there are also people in our uh, ecosystem that built biotechs before and helped translate research, they actually give very critical feedback on how they could redesign the experiments to actually have a higher chance of, of yielding translational uh, research. So in, in most cases, actually, the, the research gets fundamentally uh, redesigned like their experiments. Um, and then, actually, has, like, much higher potential, for example, to uh, yield translational results. But then I think it goes two steps further in the sense that, of course, there's also this in- incentive mismatch. It's like, if you just get a grant to do research, like, ultimately, most researchers have the incentive to, to uh, get tenure, to get a professor track, and uh, get grant funding. They don't f- fundamentally uh, have the incentive to, like, lead and, and translate research into therapeutics. So ultimately, of course, giving also the researchers ownership in, in that research and really collaborating and bringing them together with the people that can help succeed in translating that research, I think is, is kind of like the recipe for success there. And I think, of course, there are also other alternative uh, funding models that I think are promising. I think it's ultimately on a on on macro, I think, just that it, like, it's always worth uh, going against like the monolithic old uh, guard that is like very static and um and not seemingly that uh, effective at checking out like translational research and coming exploring like all kinds of different experiments on how yeah we could make a dent on translational research.
1: To keep on the topic of bottlenecks here, there's also this concept. You spoke a little bit about you know efficient funding models, but on the other side, there's this concept of journals and and other intermediaries sort of siloing or paywalling scientific research. Um, I think the interesting thing here is that you could argue that, you know, science is by definition a classic public good. So paywalls and silos for that data can actually be a pretty big deal uh, oftentimes. How do you think about this problem and where do you see the biggest opportunity for change here?
2: Yeah, I think actually the interesting one there is that even, for example, like in a in commercializable space of biotechs, it's extremely uh, siloed and like very hard to to basically get insights and access to kind of like research. And and I think for example with Vita, what I think is actually one of the biggest powers is that like a lot of things happen in the open. So for example, um if someone gives like a research proposal, everyone kind of like sees that proposal and sees kind of like the critical questions and reviews. And I think that's actually like fundamentally the power is that like it it happens in the open. People can learn in the open and uh instead of like Behind closed doors, and I think, of course, the same goes for for publishing. Is in in the sense that right now I think there's already like this revolution happening. I think there was like an executive order by uh, the the president. I'm I'm not sure um, on making like all kind of like state funded research by nature and needs to be now open accessible. I think from next year. Uh, so I think they they're already like understanding the need for making it a, um, a public good because of course fundamentally if like um research is funded by tax dollars then it needs to be also open accessible i think to the broader world i think going one step further which i think is like in our case um really interesting is that of course uh in the current ecosystem like there's like a ton of biotechs building things in, in parallel and of course they're relying on like they're oftentimes reinventing the wheel on their structures on their infrastructure um and, and then, of course, like have their own proprietary um, insights, but potentially building on, on infrastructure that they could, for example, potentially share. So I think actually in that sense, the, the huge power is building out these Lego blocks also in um, the execution of science, like, for example, LabDAO is doing to um, actually make it much easier for people to get started on, on executing and doing science. Um, yeah, and, and instead of like needing gigantic kind of like upfront investments into all of these aspects and infrastructure to do science, like getting funding for science, but also executing science.
1: Amazing. So, Paul, on to you here. You know, we've spoken about a lot of these problems that exist in scientific research as they are sort of currently as well as these legacy funding models that underpin them. And I think that all makes really good sense in theory. But in practice, why don't we talk a little bit about how a bio actually works, right? So. 2 uh, twofold here like firstly what does the process of operations actually look like internally and second of all how does molecule fit into this problem in the first place
0: yeah that's a that's a pretty big question <laughs> um yeah maybe i'll answer your second question first how does molecule fit into this um so essentially at molecule about two and a half yeah yeah two and a half years ago we uh we started full on on this journey of trying to enable decentralized drug development, um, essentially thinking that, hey, there's, um, in, in academia in general, uh, as Vincent pointed out earlier, there's this, there's this phenomenon called the valley of death, meaning that just so much research actually doesn't make it out of universities, out of laboratories, we really out of this early stage, translational stage. And a big reason for that is a lack in funding and a lack in funding organizations. And, um, Another big reason for it is so there's a lack of uh, actually organizations and entities that are willing to fund that stage of research. You're typically only looking at looking at grant funding from government institutions like the NIH uh, or other public funding bodies, um, where you typically have very very long cycles um, uh, to get to get funding. It's very political. Um, some of the researchers that we speak to say they spend up to 80% of their time essentially fundraising for grants uh, instead of actually doing the research. Uh, and uh, on the other side, you have the typical VC landscape, um, essentially where uh, where scientists need to create companies. And so within that, we began asking ourselves, often all that you need for an asset to really said, so let's say, for, for a research project to progress in the preclinical stages, all you need is funding for a killer experiment. And so at Molecule, we began, we began out thinking, uh, if we can bring liquidity much earlier into the development pipeline, um, then that could unlock a huge amount of innovation and essentially, essentially make it much easier for um, for early stage researchers uh, or researchers in these kind of preclinical stages to get funded. And so to do that, we began thinking through some of the similarities that we saw in the ha- happen to artists in the NFT market, and fundamentally because NFTs and IP are, are a great fit together. Um, because NFTs essentially enable you to encapsulate like a singular asset, uh, which you typically have with drug development. You can actually, you can build out portfolios of IP as well through your therapy NFTs, but that's a different question. So we we actually began building out, um, let's say, a, a marketplace for early stage IP. And as we began building that out, we also realized, hey, actually, it's very, it's quite difficult to build a community around a single research project. Um, just because the risks are quite high, and the level of sophistication of the community needs to be super high, so if so, typically you have a relatively maybe small patient population or small group of experts around the world that would know enough about a given kind of a, a given specialized research project to give a broader um, to give a broader opinion on it. Um, And so we had these two things. Initially, we thought, hey, should we essentially almost do crowdfunding for individual research projects? And we realized that's quite hard because it requires a lot of sophistication on the the funder side. Um, And so eventually we we began looking at how biotech holding companies essentially operate. So biotech holding companies typically specialize in a specific area and begins identifying research in that area, research assets, at universities, um, at laboratories, maybe at other biotech companies, and essentially buying that IP to develop it in-house. and because another really important question that we asked ourselves is initially, if you, so you the way that IPNFTs work, I can essentially show up as like a sponsor or a buyer of an IPNFT. So me, you, or Vincent could kind of go onto our platform and we could say, Cool, we're gonna be the ones that we we could make a we could form a small team and we could say, Cool, we're gonna sponsor this research at the University of Texas or at the University of Singapore. And now we would pool our funds together and we would kind of send them the money through our system, we would purchase the IPNFT, and now we own the IPNFT. And now we're like, cool, well, the research has been funded, the data pro- uh, creation process kicks off. Um, but we're actually like, if we're not really sophisticated biotech investors, we wouldn't actually know what to do with the IP, how to further develop it, or actually even how to refine it and make it valuable so that it can be commercialized later on. Um, and so, as we got deeper and deeper into bringing IP on chain, we realized that governance is an extremely important aspect of of IP more broadly. Uh, because even with early stage IP, you, you kind of need to decide um, you, you need to decide a, a lot of things in, on an ongoing basis. And that is um, uh, initially you need to decide what the scope of the experiments are with the researcher. Uh, many researchers actually, when they when they first come to VidaDAO, um, there's a whole set of refinement that needs to be done to their work um, to essentially ensure that um, the research is almost on the right track with what other peers in, in that particular space believe, um, and that the research actually leads to a commercializable IP. So commercialization is often not something that researchers or PIs have front and center when they're doing science. Their primary mo- motivation is to do valuable science, not necessarily to really bring new therapeutics to market. Um, and so this is where these DAOs get really interesting. So typically when you, for example, when you receive funding from a grant issuing body, they would also not think about the commercialization. Uh, and this is actually the reason why so many assets get stuck in this preclinical phase or in this valley of death, because most of the funders, if they're not VCs, they're just not interested in actually bringing something to market ultimately. It's, it's like, it's for the vibes, for the sides. Uh, for, for um, and so, to come back to your first question, so what is a bio DAO? A, a bio DAO, I think, that, I think we're riding the space as it's being made. Um, it's really, I think, building in production or testing in, testing in prod uh, as, um, as folks in crypto would say. Um, but so the fundamental goal of a biotech DAO is to essentially mimic successful execution patterns in biotech and essentially build a functioning and self-sustaining DAO that is able to perform the same functions as um, a high performance biotech company, um, but in a fully decentralized way. And so these Biodios for me are not really, they're they're definitely not, they're not investment communities so much as they are like decentralized laboratories and like patient groups. So this is something that has come up quite a bit is like, are these like essentially investment communities or investment vehicles? And I don't really think so because an investor often would behave very differently than than essentially these these bio-DAO communities do. Um, So to make it very simple, essentially a bio-DAO is is a DAO, a decentralized autonomous organization that is focused on conducting biotech research. Um, This could be, and actually we're seeing a broad range of fields already pop up from... um, from essentially re-engineering foods, um, our food supply to um, uh, synthetic biology, biomanufacturing, which are already a little bit outside of the realm of typical, let's say typical therapeutics development or typical biotech. But so to come back, fundamentally what a biotech DAO does is it builds a community and um, a public public open community of scientists, researchers, and patients that are dedicating themselves to a very specific uh, therapeutic area or a specific research area. Or you could also call these research organizations more broadly. Uh, and what they now do is they gather, let's say, the best science in their field. And they try to bring the IP that is generated through that science into the DAO. Um, and they do this through essentially hosting, building an online community that is much more open than what their peers are used to. Uh, and essentially almost creating a funnel where this DAO that now lives in, in Web3 it begins to suck in IP. Um, these DAOs themselves can sustain themselves through uh, combinations of, of governance tokens. Uh, essentially, they operate on-chain, they can raise a treasury that is then continuously deployed into funding that research, and ultimately the goal is for the research to become valuable enough that the DAO can self-sustain itself through licensing activities, through developing the IP in-house. For example, nothing stops the DAO from creating its own startups to commercialize the IP. Uh, and ultimately for this, though, to become like a functioning ecosystem. So. Essentially, um, the one way to conceive the value of these DAOs is through their their IP portfolios. So now, through the IP NFT framework, they essentially build a portfolio of IP Um, on-chain. VitaDAO, for example, I think already has five fully um, full on-chain IP NFT assets, um, some of which are already being discussed to, for example, turn into startups or to have follow-on financings. Um, And ultimately, this, this treasury of IP grows and is governed together by all of the DAO members. They don't have direct rights to the IP. They don't have rights to profits from that IP. They only have rights to govern the IP and to govern the organization as a whole. But so we can imagine if the DAO attracts valuable IP, one way to view the token is as a proxy to all of the IP that the DAO owns. And ultimately, if the IP becomes valuable, the DAO can keep growing itself through that value.
1: All right, guys, let's Get into the new stuff now. You guys publicized the launch of BioXYZ recently, which is really exciting news. But to to set the stage for ourselves here, what's the elevator pitch? What is bio.xyz and how does it relate to what's happening at Molecule?
2: I can also uh, go into it. Um, yeah, I think the very short story is to degree making this implicit learnings that like brought also our community and and we um, learned over the last year in uh to help um these emerging sets of biotech DAOs um on like very hands-on on different aspects to succeed in funding like of these other areas like uh paul mentioned and i think ultimately um kind of like building a successful DAO i think is hard and building in biotech is hard and and ultimately at the intersection it's it's, uh, it's super hard in a sense that, like, um, there's there are no, not many cases um of experience to lo- rely on. Like, ultimately, VitaDAO was the first biotech DAO, so we made a lot of learnings and still are making a lot of learnings in VitaDAO. But the goal is really to bring those learnings into um, other new projects and and to really kind of, like, support and, and grow this broader ecosystem of decentralized biotech um within this umbrella of decentralized science. Uh, of funding much more research uh, on chain, but then also bringing stakeholders into the set of uh, biotech DAOs and, and the biotech DAOs helping each other. Um, yeah, so so the <laughs> short story is really supporting and enabling uh, biotech DAOs in, in their journey. And of course, especially from their uh, conception and uh, early stages to becoming like building valuable um, GeoFlow pipeline, funding their first project, uh and and kind of like helping on on all of those aspects. And of course underlying that is really uh with molecule we're kind of like um as a company building the protocol and the infrastructure which we want to make kind of like public goods like in a sense with for example the NFT protocol and then really with um I think bio XYZ the goal is to progressively decentralize it also into like a DAO dial of DAOs that basically almost becomes like a meta governance layer for BioDAOs, where you could come in um, as a governance, for example, expert and and help to improve the governance of uh, many of these uh, biodals, um, but also where the goal really is that, for example, these biodals have governance in, in in the set of biodals um, to also have an incentive to collaborate even beyond their therapeutic areas and kind of like their insights and knowledge and bring their communities together. Um, yeah, so that's uh, the the short story. are. Of course, it's also an experiment in the sense where we think. Um we, we just started um this experiment really like a month ago and just want to see also like um kind of like the set of first uh DAOs in our cohort. So we basically um which we can go into more depth later have uh PsyDow, um funding psychedelic research, Athena funding kind of like uh women's uh health research, um then hair funding kind of like uh research in into hair loss and um And then we have uh, DAO funding synthetic biology. And this first set of uh, BioDAOs, we really want to see, like, how much we can help uh, them succeed. Um, And then we also, um, yeah, learn and kind of, like, improve the program on an ongoing basis to provide as much valuable as possible to kind of, like, the broader decentralized biotech space.
1: Yeah, I mean, as, as was mentioned there, you guys have an initial cohort you announced with the, uh, with the program's launch. I think it'd really be interesting to highlight each of them and talk a bit about what they're working on. So before we get into the structure of the program itself, to take them one at a time here, why don't we talk about PsyDAO first? It was made public a little earlier on, but it sounds like uh, there's some really interesting work going on around psychedelics there.
2: Okay, yeah, so like the, I think PsyDAO's Kind of like Inception was also that kind of like um, both like people in the, in the broader ecosystem um, as well as like uh, from our team got really excited also about like exploring novel funding structures in the in the context of psychedelic research because it's of course like a very novel kind of like therapeutic area um, that also still has like um, unique challenges. So um, basically, I think that um, the Inception was kind of like almost a year ago now, and kind of like started with like a broader workshop of people coming together during Eat Lisbon and 21. Um, and actually, like a quite active community developing, um, of, of people, um, almost cr- coming together at the shelling point of uh, psychedelics and crypto and and really exploring kind of like which research to fund at that intersection. So, the, the focus is really on, yeah, going exploring also open funding models for um like open uh psychedelic research and and kind of like the right way to um commercialize and advance that research which i think is more challenging than for other therapeutic areas
0: yeah maybe i can add a few things so i think what's really interesting interesting about psychedelic research is that it's um it's at a similar intersection of interest as longevity. It's almost like if longevity is like the expansion or like the permanence of the body, then psychedelics, I think is like the expansion of the permanence of the mind. Um, And uh, similarly as the longevity research space, it's uh, like the longevity research space was for many, I think for decades, like belittled and almost like ridiculed in like, in, in traditional sciences. So you have this kind of underdog mentality, like people like Aubrey de Grey in the longevity space have been like, we're pushing the field forward for like, from, for decades almost. Um, I think in a similar sense of like, maybe some of you remember Andreas Antonopoulos and like his early, just like his tirade on, on, uh, around Bitcoin and, and, and against kind of our, our current financial system. Um, and with psychedelics, you really had a similar i think you have a similar underdog mentality where psychedelics have been um, criminalized in many countries for for decades uh, since the 70s um despite extremely promising research and are is now again I think really strongly emerging from from the fringes um with extremely promising yeah promising data data emerging um and so one thing that we realized early on at, at molecule is I think picking your niche is extremely valuable as a startup, Uh, just general startup advice. Um, And I think it's really important to build these DAOs with a strong sense of like a Venn diagram of where different user groups and interests actually uh, overlap. Um, And so a lot of people that are into crypto happen to be into longevity, which is actually one of the reasons why we're, why, yeah, I think Vita DAO became a big success is because of this like Venn diagram. I think if you picked, for example, unfortunately, if you chose like a rare disease or uh, a specific type of cancer, maybe as a focus area for a biotech now, or if, at least if you had a year ago, I think it would be much difficult m- m- or much, m- much harder to still build a community around that. Because many people that are in those that, that suffer from these diseases are just not as Web3 native, uh, or they're not as used to digital technology like Discord servers, the whole jam that uh, that kind of makes up the Web3 stack. Um and so with psychedelics, this is a similar case where I think you have a really strong overlap of people that are interested in um in psychedelics also be interested in crypto. And you have a similarly almost repressed research community um, that is kind of dying for new solutions. And, and then I think lastly, actually, the ethos of psychedelics and decentralization maps quite nicely together in the sense of what, in, in the sense of systemic thinking, I think. Uh, I think psychedelics move things away from, like, centralization of power and, um, and much more into, like, a decentralized, sustainable ethos. Um, and so what we're doing with PsyDAO with is a very similar thing. It's building an online community of researchers, of patients, um, of investors that are essentially interested to demonopolize psychedelic research. Uh, with a DAO that now democratically owns... Um, uh, kind of can own and fund um novel psychedelic ip that is emerging uh, i think we're still at the very beginning of a i think much broader i think rediscovery of what psychedelic compounds can do for the for the human body and for the human mind um yeah uh i'll hand it over to you vincent cool
1: um i i think next we have athena DAO, which seems to be centered around women's reproductive health why don't we cover that for a minute or two here
2: yeah, I think the interesting, of course, meta theme there is that it's like an area that is um, kind of like historically underfunded, but also like I think uh, to degree degree um, also has like novel challenges in, um, in, in their uh, commercialization and translation. Um, but I think ultimately the maybe interesting background story is kind of like that um, like a lot of those efforts kind of like also have um, – like from a community standpoint, overlap with VitaDAO. and There was actually a bigger community within VitaDAO kind of like um, shepherding and leading research projects um, going into the direction of like female reproductive uh, rejuvenation and, and health in general, and kind of like exploring projects in that area. And so it really, I think, um, kind of like pro- from that got uh, kickstarted as a broader community. And then really, um, I think now they're, Really exploring, just like um, also mapping out, like which um, areas of research are, are interesting to fund, um, and really also understanding the, the kind of like pathways of commercialization. So I think one of the first uh, projects um, that they looked at was I think called uh, Mino Age by a company called Glycan Age, which I think is uh, building like biomarker like testing um, for kind of like menopause age uh, aging. Um, like, like, I'm not, I'm not, 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 a deep expert in it yet. Like, I'm also um following and reading up on their efforts, but I think this is like one example, which of course is like a bit different from like a kind of like a therapeutic, which might have like clinical trials and take a decade. In the sense that it actually is also like a consumer product that uh, people want to access, and um, and of course could also access sooner. So I think it where it also becomes really interesting is almost this property of bio also being shelling points at these intersections. Like kind of like, of, for example, people that care about uh, women's health and and crypto users, which is also like an interesting and relevant court of, of people to explore kind of like new uh, consumer health um, applications. So yeah, so I think that, like that's one of the first projects that I uh, saw that they were looking at um, and that I think they're like, now I'm looking at it, um, still to to drive forward potentially also with VitaDAO, which I think is also exciting, like seeing um, these um, collaborations between DAOs. Um, yeah.
1: Nice. I mean, as, as a part of the first cohort, we also have ValiDAO. Um, what's the rundown here? What's what's the rundown of the project and what the larger mission is?
0: Uh, so DAO is a DAO focused on synthetic biology and biomanufacturing. Um, essentially, they're looking at a whole range of um, yeah, of projects in the, in the synthetic biology field. Uh, I think actually SynBio is such an important topic for uh, essentially learning how we can live on this planet uh, in a more sustainable way. Uh, so this goes into how we produce certain um, building materials, um, how essentially we produce our food today, um, how we deal with waste. Uh, and there's so much optimization that I think we can actually we can do on a essentially on a on an engineering level in terms of how we actually engage with the biology of yeah our planet. Um, so their mission is also deeply anchored in, I think, climate change goals. I think there are certain goals, for example, for global food production that we can only meet through novel synthetic biology processes. like It's a simple exercise of like, if we lose this much arable, arable land in the world, which we will due to climate change, then uh, unless we develop different food production methods, people will go hungry at a certain date uh, if climate change continues to accelerate in the way that it has. And um, so I'm a huge fan of their mission. Um, Albert, Daniel, and, and Hamza, um, please check out their Discord. Um, they recently did a rebrand um, that we helped them do through BioXYZ. Um, yeah, uh, maybe some of the, (laughs) I've always been, maybe I can talk about a project that I'm personally really excited about, but, uh, I I don't know whether they're actually currently pursuing that. Um, they actually, they're working with a host of companies already, as well as universities. One of them is the university college London. Uh, essentially they're very active at the moment in building a, a researcher community. Um, they've already attracted, I think some of the leading researchers in the, in the bio field. Uh, and are now working. I think towards the end of the year already, towards minting a first uh, a first IP NFT, which which we're really excited about. Um, IP in the synbio space can work a little bit differently than in uh, in the traditional biotech field, where you work more with composition of matter patterns. Typically, in in the synbio world, you work with around methods of production, uh, which is also really interesting actually for our team to understand a different IP landscape a little bit better. Um which is really valuable like for us on the molecule side to continuously build out um kind of build out our kind of IP optimization engine um yeah and maybe yeah, I'll talk about that one project. <laughs> I think this was like this was released uh, maybe a year ago, but it this also falls in the into the realm of synthetic biology. I'm a huge gardener myself like I love plants, uh, like you'll see some of them in the background at my house like I have I have a Uh, probably 40 in total. But um, I have the stream of like glow-in-the-dark plants, (laughs) which is actually not that hard to do. uh, um, um, uh, And there's already, um, there's a company already in the U.S. that has glow-in-the-dark, I think it's Begonias. Um, But uh, essentially that maybe in 20, 30 years, instead of using electricity to power streetlights, we could have glow-in-the-dark plants in like major cities around the world, which would save a ton of electricity. Uh, and I just love this. I have this avatar like vision where you kind of, I think in avatar, there's a scene where they walk through like the garden or something where they arrive there and it's all like glow in the dark. Yep. Yep. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll leave it there. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay. I think the the last one we have to cover here, um, and then I'd be interested in, in covering the structure of the program for, for a bit as well. We have a pretty interesting project in hair uh, advancing research and development for hair loss treatments. What's the rundown here so people can understand?
0: Oh, alopecia. Yeah. So, um alopecia and hair loss, is, sorry, I forgot the, forget the word sometimes. Alopecia and hair loss is, I think, another field of research and another actually very large online community that has been really underserved by traditional pharma and and biotech. Um, hair loss replacement therapies are actually just um, hair replacement therapy where it's it's actually um, a physical surgery, is extremely expensive and still today remains one of the kind of the only viable long-term treatment options. Um, and it's just inaccessible for most people around the globe. Um, if you go online, actually, and you look around, um, you look into hair loss communities, you'll find vast, sprawling online communities, mostly of very unhappy middle-aged men, kind of as a de- demographic, but even younger men, it can start as early as like as 14, 16, most cases it happens between 20 and 30 uh, or, or 40 Um uh, yeah, that suffer from hair loss, and it can be a huge, I think, huge factor in a man's in a man's life. Uh, I think it, it can affect women as well, but it's, it's mostly um, dominant with men. And d- due to the fact that there are very few on onli- there are very few available treatments, and um, essentially only like a physical surgery, there are online online communities that have been helping each other for the past twenty years almost. Um, it borders a little bit almost on like the bodybuilding communities. Like there's, a, there's an overlap there. But if you think essentially online communities that are trying to achieve something. And one thing that we find very interesting with biodials is tapping into areas where those online communities already exist. Like if, if your therapeutic area has like, let's say, a Reddit with three or 500,000 people in it, that's probably a good area to build a biotech DAO in because now you can tap into a massive online community. The same thing is true for psychedelics, for example. The same thing is absolutely true for the longevity space. So actually I think in therapeutic areas where you don't have that, it's going to be much more difficult to build a biotech DAO, which is one of the reasons why we're really bullish on on hair DAO. Um, We think it's going to grow a lot, (laughs) Um, just to the size of this online community. Um, But so essentially what they're working on at the moment is working with the leading researcher on, um, on hair loss, on funding some of the research that is coming out of his, um, his, res- his work in, in, I think they're based in Germany. Um, and they've already w- very quickly managed to assemble like a large online community, essentially tapping into existing connected community, patient communities, uh, and bringing them into Web3. And we, we think that's a really powerful model, uh, essentially engaging an existing, well-connected um, digital uh, community to onboard into, into a DAO. Um, Yeah, also both of the founders are called Andrews. Uh, We call them the two Andrews. Uh, Yeah, absolutely love the team and and their mission. Uh, And like, I think a lot of us like hair loss can feel not that important. But I think when you suffer from it, it's, 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 it's something. um, Yeah, that really affects you.
1: Amazing. Um, to turn our attention back to BioXYZ itself, um, what's the structure of the program? Like, how does each cohort actually function? And what are some of the resources you provide to DSi projects that take part in it?
2: Yeah, I can, I can start with this. So kind of like from a high level right now, the structure is uh, roughly that it runs for, like the first cohort runs for four and a half months, so for 18 weeks. And like, we, we help on kind of like all different aspects uh, necessary for building a biotech DAO. Um which of course goes from like um the tech to the tokenomics to helping on regulatory kind of protections to the i p n f t integrations to research and deal flow governance tokenomics, community as well as like uh branding design um and then really also um just giving like a, a grant of like a hundred thousand dollars and and kind of like hands on support in all of these areas um and then really leading to also um helping to share and present uh the project in in the core with a broader ecosystem to join and support um throughout and i think yeah like that's the high level structure
1: so how can people apply and uh what advice might you have for people looking to join the program like what makes a project a good fit here
2: yeah it's a great question i think like of course the easiest answer is just um you can just apply on bio.xyz on the website. Like the application process is kind of like in, in multiple steps um, and similar to like, for example, Emo Y Combinator. Really the, I think what makes a good bio DAO, in my view, is like two or three things. Like the, the, the first one, I think, is really actually having a good grasp of like an interesting therapeutic or broader like area of research with like also mapped out kind of like... Um, Research deal flow and kind of like a scientist community, and then also like a broader um, community. Like it's always like a good sign. Like some community, like some um, efforts apply to us that have like like that exist since the '80s and have a community of like 10,000 people, and 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 regular deal flow and funders, and for example, act as a nonprofit in the traditional world. But are really excited by this new structure, and that that of course like makes it easier in the sense if they've already built up a huge like a community of like researchers and deal flow and like a broader community that it would be excited to get behind this i think the other aspect um yes yeah, so, so I already outlined the two aspects like i think it's really community um and then kind of like the research area and um kind of like deal flow and and research there which i think makes for a good fit and then i think like sometimes as paul mentioned they're like interesting fits which are, are almost like which feel almost more like a niche, but actually have like a huge overlap with crypto, like uh psychedelics and longevity is a good example. Um but then of course there are also like traditionally big areas. And I think we're still also figuring out like the like the broader, like like where biodowers will be the most successful. I think in some areas, for example, that are gigantic, like Alzheimer's or oncology, it's also uh harder to make a dent in the sense because you already have like fifty billions of funding each year flowing into those areas. And 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 something, of course, like longevity is interesting because it's it's almost like an alternative take on it that resonates more with uh, crypto that goes to the root cause of the diseases and ultimately also can then uh, channel, for example, into uh, oncology or Alzheimer's. But so I think we are like agnostic a bit to um, kind of like the research areas, but of course also try to understand kind of like the long-term potential of those areas and like if they make a good fit for the broader space. But I think like one core thing is really just like, Having a viral and, and kind of like active community involving researchers and scientists, but also really enthusiasts and also people from the crypto world, um, yeah. And then, uh, like, what I think also valuable and what I've seen as a pattern and also as like a good point uh of call to action for listeners is that like a lot of the people that I think are really successful in building up, for example, the Valley DAO um already gathered experience supporting um, actively in VitaDAO. So I think actually the, the easiest way for people to get to join is to join one of these DAOs. Like ultimately all of them have like onboarding calls and like are fairly easy to join, which I think is of course the whole point of this decentralized kind of like trustless, permissionless uh, uh, ecosystem is like joining VitaDAO, joining ValleyDAO, AthenaDAO, SaDAO, HairDAO and, and other bioDAOs out there think it's the easiest way to get a sense of how one can add value and, and potentially figuring out uh, one's own biodial to create at some point with together with others.
1: Great guys, to start closing out the conversation today, I'd like to take a couple steps back and look further into the future. You know, so much has happened in only the last couple of years. And I'm curious to hear uh, what each of you see the molecule and XYZ and larger DCI ecosystem looking like on a longer time horizon, say, yeah. you know, five to 10 years from now
2: yeah I think it's an excellent question i think maybe like starting with like s- like uh, like a successful outcome i think it would really be on the biotech side and and therapeutic side is like successful kind of like phase three clinical trials like ultimately that's like the the go uh, goal of of every biotech is to actually reach patient uh, patients and of course there has been biotechs that like were worth a billion and then failed or like even like famous examples in alzheimer's and i think to me, of course, they have like, totally failed, even though they were uh, valuable at some point, because they ultimately didn't achieve uh, patient outcomes. So I think that's kind of like the end goal, and, and everything. Uh, and we try to like maximize the odds and likelihood that uh, I think as many um, kind of like research projects in the ecosystem reach kind of like the successful outcome. And I think one way which we're thinking about, Mike definitely is really mapping out different ways how IP. Could travel like from the earliest stages, uh, successfully through the valley of death, uh in into successful clinical trials, and I think it will be multiple pathways there. And I think, of course, one interesting one which is like a bit separate from our, our core um, initiative, but which we I think also want to enable is like even open public goods, uh, like novel mechanisms to fund science, which I think, for example, also Sadar is looking into. But I think the other is also like a traditional a process of um helping create spin-offs and, and spin out uh biotechs basically out of these bio uh DAOs and and help and support with that from the molecule side. But then I think in a much broader sense, I think it's it's just getting started. I think like there was of course already like a blockchain for science movement I think since twenty fifteen or sixteen we also uh, Paul and, and and others in an ecosystem were already um involved and and I think for example, now with a uh, GitCon round that we also help put together, like the broader DSI ecosystem is just getting its initial funding, and same for for bio And I think like the the future is bright, and and I think in a sense, of course, it's not just about uh, biotech DAOs, but also about the infrastructure, about like publishing, about all of these different building blocks. And I think there's so many people, for example, trying to build the infrastructure now for DAOs broadly, or for now even biotech DAOs specifically, with for example Lab Offer new ways to do scientific publishing in the decentralized science era that I think like we'll see a lot also fail and iterate and improve, but ultimately also a lot succeed hopefully in in driving these patient outcomes. So I think that's like, yeah, really the end goal.
1: Sweet. Paul, anything to to add to close this out here?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So,
0: I mean, personally, I see a future of hundreds, potentially thousands of these uh, organizations emerge. Uh, and also become much more specialized over time, um, almost like having you could have main, you could have domain DAOs, and then domain specific, uh, domain area specific DAOs, essentially just branching out like Merkle trees as they kind of explore a disease more and more, uh, or a particular research area more and more. And then it, we have to imagine, like, let's say if we maybe in in five years from now, we're looking at having. I think there's going to be with this first cohort, we're going to have. Uh, we're going to have five biotech DAOs, at least kind of in our definition. I think the definition, though, is open for people to interpret in whatever way they want. And I think we're already outside of the biox z cohort. There's already many really amazing organizations that we'd love to connect with to also form a part of the network. So big shout out there. But I think maybe in total, we're looking at having maybe there's 10 active biotech focused DAOs today or eight, like something, some, uh, something around there. And so maybe if we can extrapolate this, maybe in three years, I mean, if we look at, in general, growth curves around new concepts like this, we could be looking at having a few hundred in uh, in a few years. And then you have to imagine that each of these DAOs now essentially begins, in our conception, begins kind of sucking like a vacuum, sucking IP out of the real world into Web3. And then people are going to start building with IP NFTs, with the, this IP that DAOs bring in. So like Lego blocks, you have to, you have to imagine... Many DAOs forming in many different therapeutic areas and all of these DAOs now sucking in IP and treating them like Lego blocks, building little sub DAOs out of them, integrating them into parts of the the whole DeFi stack. You can imagine collateralizing your IP NFT later on. uh, We're very actively working on fractionalization. And so maybe where I see the world in three to five years is like actually, actually, I think there's a large potential to quickly move into a much more open and liquid market for science and for intellectual property which would be huge. Um, if you just imagine the, the, what's the total addressable market for science? <laughs> like the, you're talking about one of the, if not the biggest industry in the world, because it touches tangentially so many other few areas in our lives. Um, and I think the other reason why actually creating this market for science at this stage in, in evolutionary development of humanity is so important because I think over the past 40 years, we've neglected science. To the benefit of capitalism, I think in many cases, I think like good science hasn't won, or like good innovation hasn't won, in over the past forty years. It's like profitable innovation, and so I think as we transition our world economy to being more sustainable and being less profit orientated, I think this new market for science will play a huge role, um, because I think these new organizational forms uh, that biotech DAOs pose and that that um, asset classes like the IPNFT pose. Actually stand, um, actually stand a chance to make our current system fundamentally more efficient. Uh, I think where the, one of the biggest innovations that I've seen come out of organizations like VitaDAO or, or out of BioDAOs more broadly is that I personally believe that they can have a 10x the efficiency of the current system. Uh, if you said, I'm going to build a biotech organization today, I'm going to hire, let's say, 50 of the world's brightest researchers in that specific area, you're looking at a pretty high burn rate, and and DAOs in that sense can now I think incentivize people through decentralized token based governance, um, but also through an entirely new mission and culture that comes with these DAOs. It's like a mission of open science. It's a mission. It's a mission that brings us back I think to the roots of why we're why why we're enga- engaging in science, like why longevity is important to us, for example, and. Um, and I think this actually driving things away from profits back to like the core mission of curing a disease or curing aging <laughs> um, is what really motivates people in these organizations. And um, yeah, so I think we have a fundamental chance here to build a better system. And I envision a world where we have hundreds of these biotech DAOs and ideally working on thousands of different IPNFTs, those IPNFTs becoming fractional. Um, people maybe trading on real-time data, coming back to what I said in the very beginning, rather than waiting three months for data around a life-saving drug to emerge, I could see it emerge in real-time, maybe through one of the DAOs, I can be a patient, and I can get access to an early stage clinical trial that this DAO is working on. Uh, I think actually, the if we think, you know, Web3, I think, is all about thinking in open APIs and like open Lego blocks that we can all build around. Um, and that's also really the way that we're conceptualizing BioXYZ is like as a fully open community, as an open ecosystem that anyone can come into and and uh, and, and build the future with. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll leave it there.
1: <laughs> Excited for what the future holds for Molecule and, and uh, BioXYZ, the larger ecosystem. Um, I think that's about all the time we have today, guys. Thank you so, so much for doing this.
2: Thank you for taking the time and having us. Thank you so much, Alex.
1: Thanks so much for tuning in. For more information about this podcast and about Molecule, and if you have any questions and want to get into a deeper discussion about today's topics, feel free to visit Molecule's site, Twitter, or Discord. You can find all the important links in the description and show notes below. Also, if you're a researcher seeking funding, if you want to start working in a biotech tower, get involved in any way, please visit Molecule's website, molecule.to, for more information. Thanks again for tuning in, and see you again soon.